We're going to continue on in Romans, been working through Romans, so we're going to be in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, fire up your devices. If you don't, as usual, we always have pew Bibles there that are pre-marked in front of you. Go ahead and open that up to chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I just want you to think, have you ever had a time where you have been explaining something to a coworker, or explaining something maybe to your to a friend, family, your kids, and you can tell the more you explain it to them, the less they understand it. And not only do they not understand it, but now they're going to start formulating a rebuttal. They've got some objections. I have a child, one of my three sons. Uh, we will leave him nameless, but he does an awesome job on slides. That he is quite, uh, quite prevalent at doing this. When, when we're trying to have a discussion, you can see those wheels turning. Because he's got the objections. He's like, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if, what if this? What if this? What if this? Well, as we're going to see, Paul's prepared for this. You see, up to this point, Paul is, has been addressing a couple of groups. First, he addresses the Gentiles in chapter 1. We saw that he addressed the Gentiles in this, this idea that, that they have rejected God, even though he has made himself revealed in nature. And then he goes in chapter 2 and he starts addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles here and showing that God is impartial. He's, he's not biased, so he's going to bring the same wrath. He has the same standard for everybody. And at the end of chapter 2, he goes straight to the Jews. And he helps to try to help them see, tries to speak with them to help them see the, this idea that they need righteousness, not religion, uh, in order to to be made right with God. His, his whole point, Paul's whole reasoning is this, leading up to this, is he's trying to help everybody, help them see that there's none who are beyond rebuke, that, that the whole world is guilty. Everybody is guilty. Everybody is going to be held accountable by God. And now he's going to prepare to defend what he said. And it's spe specifically, he's going to do this with the Jews. If we look through Acts, as we see as Paul goes on his missionary journeys, Paul's writing this. He's already been on multiple journeys. And every time Paul would go to a new city, the first place he would go to is he would go to the synagogues. He would go to the Jewish people, and he would speak to them. And he would eventually get kicked out of the synagogue. They would run him out, and then he would go talk with the Gentiles. But he always started there. So through these times, Paul, very smart man, he learns what they're going to say. He knows their arguments. He knows the objections they're going to have. And so in writing this letter, since he's not going to be there to help answer those questions, but he knows they're going to come up, those objections are going to come up, he's going to go ahead and he's going to answer them right now. He's going to start addressing them before they ever get started. Because they're going to start making some claims about God. And Paul's going to say this has nothing to do with your religion. This has totally everything to do with grace. Everything is based on God's grace, his faithful grace. As a matter of fact, that's the title, God's faithful grace. And so join me as we read. We're only going to go through eight verses here. As we read through this, and then we'll start looking at these objections that the Jews have. So beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness demonstrates the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through the lie, or through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation, condemnation is just. So, Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Lord, help us to to see your truth. Help us to see your faithfulness that comes through your grace. Lord, to see that you are the same always. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if we look at these, there's eight verses. There's four objections that are made in the form of questions, broken into pairs. And so Paul's going to address the first one. you got to remember, he's just laid a devastating attack on Judaism. He has just come down on everything they've had. He's, he's told them they're not exempt. They're not exempt from God's wrath. He's told them their circumcision isn't going to save them. Their religion's not enough. And so they're, they're going to object to this. They're going to say, make this claim about God that, that, well, he couldn't, or he wouldn't, I'm sorry, he wouldn't condemn us. We're his people. We're his chosen people. He wouldn't do this to us. He's called us out. He wouldn't condemn us for these sins. Otherwise, what's the point of being a Jew? That's in the very first verse. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? You see, Paul has attacked both of their fundamental values. The circumcision. They've had that for 2,000 years. That was their mark from God to say they were God's covenant people. And he says, it's not going to matter. It's not enough. The law, in verse in chapter 2, he says the law doesn't matter because you don't follow it. They've had that for 1,500 years. That was the two tenements of their faith. And Paul has just crushed them. And they're saying, but you wouldn't do this to us because we're chosen people. But logically, logically, when they... Listen to what Paul said. They can't argue with his reasoning. They can't argue with it. If, if we're going to condemn people and then do the same thing, how can we say that we're exempt? Or, yeah, we may have the, the mark as, the, as being God's circumcised people, but if we're not following his path, it's, it's like we aren't. Again, Paul was trying to show they needed righteousness, not religion. But now the question comes to mind that, well, what does this say about, about God? If he called us out, if he chose us and he gave us this, but then he's going to condemn us still, we're not exempt, they begin to wonder, is, is, God, is God worth it? What's the advantage of being a Jew? It's a very good question. It can bring doubts to your mind after hearing what Paul said. But Paul tells them that everything is great about being a Jew. He says it's great. The benefits, they're great in every respect. But for them to understand how it's great, they're going to have to look beyond themselves. They're going to have to get out of their own way 
and look to God to see how it's great. In chapter 9, we'll see he's going to give a long list of reasons it's great to be a Jew. But right here, he says, first and foremost, God spoke to you. God gave you his promises. Did you see that? He gave you his word. He says, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The very words of God were given to them. He had revealed himself to them. God shows his grace by revealing himself to them. He shows his grace. He didn't have to reveal himself to anybody. Paul's already told us he's revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself. But God has entrusted them with his words. His grace is shown with this trusting. God has shown his grace to the world by giving us his word. The Old and New Testament, he has spoke to the world. No longer is it just for the Jews. God's grace has been poured out on everybody. He's revealed himself to everyone. And so, if everybody has the benefit of God's word, what advantage is there to being a Christian? What advantage is there to being a follower of Christ? The advantage is that we are vessels of his grace. We have become vessels of his grace. God has revealed himself, revealed his nature, revealed his love and his kindness and his forgiveness through his son Christ. And now he's given us the opportunity to go and share that with others, to be a vessel of his grace. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, he says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. This is in 1, 25 and 26. Of this church, capital C church, I was made a minister, a teacher, according to the stewardship. God gave it to me, put me in charge of it, he says from God, that it was from him. And he says it was done for your benefit. It wasn't done for his benefit. He's a vessel. He says, I'm a vessel to be used so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I'm a vessel to use. Why? He says, what is that preaching of the word? That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, has now been manifested to his saints, those who believe, Christians, it's been manifested to us, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, the benefit of being Christian is I'm a vessel of God's grace to go help others to know about Christ. We have to look beyond ourselves. It's not about us. They said, the Jews said, God wouldn't condemn us. He wouldn't condemn us. Paul says it's only because of his grace that he does it, not because of your privilege. It's only because of his grace. Well, this is going to open up a new objection. You see, they had been trusted, entrusted with God's oracles, with his words. And that was a great thing to be. It was good to be a Jew. But then in the same breath, Paul has just told them that they're going to face the same wrath as the Gentiles. They had been promised by God never to leave or forsake them, but they aren't, they aren't uh, exempt from his wrath. And so now 
This doesn't make sense to them. And so now instead of saying God couldn't or wouldn't, they're going to say, well, he couldn't do it. God couldn't condemn us. He couldn't do it. He's, he's made a promise to us. That's, that's against his nature. That's against his very nature. It says right there in verse 3, he says, well, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? The question that's brought to mind is, is God's faithfulness dependent on them being faithful? Is God's faithfulness dependent on them? They were Jews. They had been given the law, but they fail it following the law that God gave them. So does that mean that somehow that their faith, faithlessness nullifies God's faithfulness? Does it somehow nullify it? They're saying, well, he couldn't do that because he's made a promise. Paul, he says, well, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thought. He says, may it never be, in verse 4, rather let God be found true, though every man is found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul's saying to him, God is faithful regardless of what you do. God is going to be faithful, but you have your part to play in it. Your sin is on you. He quotes David out of Psalm 51. This is when David is reflecting on the infidelity with Bathsheba. And the psalm itself says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David's saying, my sin's on me, God. I know it is, but you're still good. You're still good even when I've failed. You're faithful even when I'm faithless. Our sin is on us. It's not going to affect God's faithfulness. As a matter of fact, we can look throughout the Old Testament. We can see throughout history how God had been faithful with the Israelites when they were faithless. How God had walked with them when they were pivoting away from him. A couple examples I want to look at real quick. And one is in Exodus. In Exodus 32, and you don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like. But in Exodus 32, God has just brought the Israelites out of bondage, has led them into the wilderness, promised to take them to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, and now he's called Moses up on to Mount Sinai. He's called him up. He's given him the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the, law, the very thing that they hold in such high regards. And he's up there for 40 days, and the people panic. And what do they do? They say, he's not coming back. Let's build an idol. Let's build our God that we can worship it. And they build a golden calf. And God, looking down on it, in verse 9, Chapter 32 says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. God's saying, Moses, there is no hope for them. They are so broken. I'm going to get rid of them all. I'm going to wipe them all out, and we're going to start from scratch. You see what Moses does. He entreats the Lord. He, he pleads. He, he begs to God on their behalf. And he reminds them in verse 13. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants. That I will take them 
and I will take them to the land, and they will inherit it forever. And it says the Lord changed his mind. The Lord was faithful when they were faithless. And then we just fast forward just a little bit in the book of Numbers. We jump up into the book of Numbers. God has led them now to the doorstep of the Holy Land. They are right there on it, the promised land. God says, send some spies out and go see what I've promised you. Go look at the land I've given you. And they go. And they come back and they said, they ask, Israel asks, what, what's it like? And they go, it's just like God's promised. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful place. Got trees everywhere, fruit growing all over the place. This is going to be perfect, except there are people there and they're too big. We're like ants to them. We're like grasshoppers. Their cities are too fortified. They send 12 spies out of all of Israel. Two were faithful. Do you remember who they were? Joshua and Caleb. Only Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb says in verse 30 of Numbers 13, he says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. God said it's going to happen. Why would I doubt what God says? And so while the people were faithless, and that generation may not have made it, God was faithful, and he still led his people into the promised land. Time and time again, we can see in the Old Testament. But I picked these two in particular because I think it's very poignant for us. Because you see, it is so easy to become faithless right after God has been faithful. It is so easy for us to become faithless after he's become faithful. God had just brought them out of bondage. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And they stumbled. They were standing on the precipice of the Holy Land that he had promised them, and they were faithless. How many times in our own life God has answered a prayer He's shown us the way that we've been looking for. He's, he's guided us, but we get lost in our circumstances. We get lost in what's happening in our life, and, and we begin to doubt his faithfulness. We begin to struggle with our faith. We begin to question God. God, I know, I know you've led me through struggles before, but are you going to do it again? Are you going to help me through this one? Are, are, are you even there, God? Do you hear me? Have you forgotten me? We begin to doubt his faith. We begin to, to try to push God away. And it ultimately ends up leading to what I've heard so many Christians say when they're in a time of struggle, a time of, of pain, of hurt, and they go, I've made God mad and he's punishing me. He, he's, he's left me right now. He's punishing me. They become faithless. It's not how God works. I've got a poem. I'm sure most of us have heard this. Maybe not the most theologically prolific. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, deep. There's the word I want to say. But it's a great view of God's faithfulness. One night I dreamed a dream as I was walking across the beach with my Lord. Across a dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. 
one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I need you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. We forget that God is faithful. Because we think that our faith has an impact on his faithfulness. Matter of fact, Paul says quite the opposite. Paul tells him that God's truth is the same no matter what happens. If you read in verse 4 again, he says, Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Though every man be found a liar. He says, if the whole world fails, if it all falls apart, the truth of God is still the same. You can't change God. You have no influence. God's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen, regardless of us. So do we think that we can change who he is? Do we think we can change him? His faithfulness isn't dependent on us. He doesn't need us to make him be more faithful. It's by his grace that he's faithful. So Paul's letting him know God's grace is what makes him faithful. There's nothing you can do to change how God loves you, how God cares about you. He created you on purpose for a relationship with him. And he's so faithful to that relationship that he sent his son to die in order that you could be redeemed, even when we were failing. And so they argue, well, well God couldn't condemn us he couldn't do it. It's against his nature. Paul says it's only by his grace that he is faithful. It's not by obligation. It's by his grace that he's faithful. And so that leads in to the next objection. They just keep piling up. If by his grace he's faithful, well, now logically, well, then their faithlessness must improve his faithfulness. Must make it better. And so now their argument is, well, God shouldn't condemn us. Because he benefits from our unfaithfulness. It's to his benefit that we're like this. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? We do bad, it makes God good. Hey. And they say, wouldn't he be unjust if he did, if that was the case? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? If, he, if he's going to punish us for doing something wrong, the very thing he tells us not to do, he's going to punish us for, but it makes him better, makes him look better. He actually benefits from it. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. He can't have it both ways. God can't do it both ways. 
John gets off work. He's had a long week. It's Friday night. He decides he's going to stop at the bar on the way home and have a few drinks. He wants to relax before he gets home. Throws a few back with his friends. He goes and gets in the car. He's got to hurry home for dinner. He makes a poor choice. Gets behind the wheel. And as he's leaving, he T-bones a car. Hits a woman. Puts her in the hospital. She's in the hospital. They've, they've got her on the operating table. They're doing surgery to save her life. And in the process, they find a cancerous tumor growing on her liver. They remove that, that tumor. It's small. They remove it. She fully heals. She's cancer-free. And John is before the judge. He goes, you can't punish me for this. If I hadn't hit her, if I hadn't done that, she might not have ever known that she had cancer. She benefited from it. It's actually a good thing. That's a flaw in their logic. They're arguing that, that God is unrighteous. They're trying to say that he's unrighteous for punishing them. This is ludicrous. This is strictly a human way of understanding things. Paul even apologizes for it. Aaron Prince, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. This is, this is borderline blasphemy for Paul to say that God is unrighteous. Paul tells him, he says, this is a ridiculous, asinine statement you're making. He, he says, I don't even want to justify it, so I'm going to ask another question. He says, how could God judge the world if he was unrighteous? How could he judge the world? He's already said back in verse 16 that on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. God, time and time again, says he's going to judge the world. How could he judge the world if he is unrighteous? Paul says that's not even, not even worth debating. They're trying to say that God is un, unrighteous by doing this. Paul's saying God is the standard. He is the standard. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's impartial. He is the standard. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be qualified to judge. Again, spending a lot of time looking back in the Old Testament. As Abraham is standing with God, looking over Sodom, and God says, I'm going to wipe this place out because it's too far gone. What's Abraham do? He pleads with God. God, you're righteous. You, you're, you're good. You wouldn't do it if there were 50 people in there that were righteous, would you? And Paul, God says, no, I wouldn't. Abraham says, well, if there's 40, 30, 20, 10. God says, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it if there were 10. Abraham could have argued it down to one. Because God is righteous. He is impartial. He is the standard to go by. So this idea of him being unrighteous, it's blasphemy. It goes against his very nature. And so their argument is God shouldn't condemn us. That he shouldn't do it. And Paul says it's by his grace that he does it, not by your unrighteousness. Your unrighteousness isn't what keeps you safe. It's God's grace. And Paul's going to continue to build on this because this one, I'm guessing they must really want to argue with this one and past experience. He goes on with this idea that somehow in their unrighteousness enhances God's righteousness. And like little kids, little kids who aren't getting their way, the arguments are going their way, they resort 
to the simple, well, God can't because it's not fair. God can't do it. It's not fair. He's benefiting from what is happening. He can't condemn us. If their logic was true, if it was right, how would it be fair for God to judge them? Verse 7, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Why am I still being judged as a sinner? If he's truly being glorified, why punish him? Paul's saying this is a flawed logic. Let me give you a couple examples. We're all liars. I'm a liar. You're a liar. My kids are liars. My parents are liars. Your parents, everybody's a liar. Pope lies. Politicians, I don't think they do anything but lie. Everybody lies. We're broken. God cannot lie. God is perfect. God does not lie. Therefore, when I lie, it just shows how much better he is because he is perfectly truthful. And if it's glorifying him, if God looks so much better in relation to me, then why should he punish me for it? Growing up, I had friends that weren't the best of friends. They were good friends, but maybe they didn't do so well in school, or maybe they weren't the cleanest, or maybe they dabbled in drugs, hung out with the wrong crowd. I liked them. They were good friends, but kind of benefited me because next to them, I looked pretty good to my parents. I looked good next to those. Those kids. We've all, I think we've all had friends like that. If you haven't had a friend like that, you may be that friend. But the idea is, I look better next to them. God looks better by our sins. As a matter of fact, they say we ought to just do it more. He looks better. They're trying to, to, trying to justify the ends by the means. It's a way of justifying their sin, is all it is. To justify living in the life that is pursuit of themselves instead of God. Paul, again, he's like, this, this is just asinine. This is the most ridiculous statement. He says, well, why not say? Let us do evil that good may come. Man, if, if doing bad, some bad makes God look good. Man, doing a lot of bad is going to make God look great. All that does is that causes people to fall into sin. Causes people to sin more. Causes them to turn further away from God, to pivot further away from them. And Paul says, all that wrath that we talked about back in chapter 2, that God's going to bring down on everybody because he's going to judge them based on what they've done, it's going to be worth it. You deserve it. That's why he says back there that God is going to punish all people based on their deeds. He says they're all going to deserve it. They, they say that God can't condemn us. Paul says he can, but by his grace, he doesn't. But he can and he will, but it's by his grace that he doesn't. And so Paul has addressed these objections, these four objections, as we've read through here, these, that they're, the Jews are privileged people. They say that God couldn't, and he, or he wouldn't, and he couldn't, and he shouldn't, and he can't condemn us. Maybe there's some people here today. I know there's people, well, maybe there's some here today that are having them same, same arguments. Man, I've been blessed all my life. Really, God, God's taken care of me all my life. I've had a good job. I've got a good house, so 
you know, I, maybe do some stuff wrong, but, but God, God's okay with it. Saying God would condemn you. You know, God, he's, he's, he's loving and he's caring and he's, he's forgiving. And, and so that's just part of who he is. So, so he, couldn't, he couldn't get mad at me for, for this little mistake. He can't get mad at me for it. Maybe, maybe it's something more along the lines of, well, you know, yeah, I know I've done bad, but, but God is, is, is loving and, and forgiving, and, and, and it makes him look better when he can forgive me, so he shouldn't get mad. Or even the worst, this is one that we see taught in our churches all over this country, and that's, well, God made me this way. It's just how I am. It's how he made me. And so he can't, he can't do anything. This is his fault. He did it. He made me like this. Look, all I was trying to do is just trying to reconcile God's faithfulness with your sin. That's trying to justify the sin that we live in so that we can continue walking down that same path. That's self-centered. That's not God-centered. If you, if you don't take anything else from this message today, you don't take anything else, understand this. Sin never glorifies God. No sin ever glorifies God. It just doesn't happen. Sin doesn't glorify him. He is faithful, yes. He is faithful, but it's not because of your sin. It's not because of what you've done wrong that he's faithful. It's because of what he's done right. It's because of his grace that he is faithful. God's grace is seen throughout the Old Testament, and it's seen in the New Testament. God's grace is seen on the cross. On Calvary, where the sins of man were paid for. That glorifies God, not your sin. God's grace is seen in his son. His son who came down to this earth to die so that man could be forgiven. That glorifies God, not our sins. When you repent of your sins, when you turn from your, your brokenness, when you pivot away from it and you turn towards him and pursue him, that glorifies God. You see, it's not us that glorifies God. He glorifies himself. He provides the ways to bring glory to himself. He did that through his son. God's grace abounds in so many ways. And he pours it out freely on those who would believe. The gospel is the greatest grace that God has ever shown. The gospel is the grace that draws us out of darkness, out of our sin, and into his light, into his forgiveness. They said God couldn't or wouldn't couldn't, shouldn't, and can't. When you put your faith in Jesus, God says, I won't. I won't because I have with my son. He's born. I want to share the gospel with you. To f know that truth of God's faithfulness, to know that hope that comes only through his son, and that's that you were created on purpose and for a great purpose. That purpose is to have a right relationship with God. A relationship that he brought you here on this earth for. 
and that he craves so much. He wants to be with you. But unfortunately, because of sin, sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve, sin that went through God's chosen people, sin that goes through us, through our children, will continue to go until Christ returns. We're separated from God. He is perfect. He is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so at just the right moment in time, he sent down his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life. God showed his grace by sending his son down. Jesus went to the cross where he bore the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. He died and he was buried and he rose on the third day, proven he was who he says he was and he can do what he says he can do. The Bible tells us if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. You will be saved, not by your works, for you have been saved by faith. It's the grace of God. By your faith, you can be saved. There is hope. Don't think that God can't, or he won't, or he couldn't, or he shouldn't. But know that he offers a way that you don't have to bear that anymore. You don't have to live in that fear. That's what Paul was trying to help them to see. It's not about religion. It's not about works. It's about God's grace. It's always about God's grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are graceful. I thank you that your grace is new every day. I thank you that you saw our greatest need. I thank you that you withhold your wrathful hand, not because you're obligated to, not because we deserve it, Lord, not because of what we've done, but because of your grace. You have held your hand back to give us the opportunity to be redeemed. And so, Lord, I thank you for the blood of your Son. I thank you for the blood that has been shed for the sins of all mankind. Lord, I pray that today we remember that grace, that that grace is enough. As you tell Paul when he is bearing that pain in his side, Lord, you say that your grace is enough. And so, Lord, let us bask in your grace. Those who maybe have not put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that today is the day that they can feel that grace that you have poured out onto the world wash over them. The grace that washes them clean. Cast their sin as far as east is from west and makes us white as snow. And Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, let us never take that grace for granted. Lord, we know that you are faithful and it is not dependent on us. But Lord, let us be faithful. Let us walk in obedience to your will, Lord. Let us never be content with our sins. Let us pursue the one who pursues us. And so we love you, Lord. We are thankful for all you have done and you will continue to do. Let us continue to do your work, to be your vessels of grace until you return or you call us home.
Lord, let us be faithful. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.